0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27, and this afternoon we will continue our discussion from last week about the brazen altar which stands in scripture as a type of the cross of christ our study of course is the tabernacle and how that god gave gave it to be a symbol of his presence with his people and it's a symbol that would end in the most glorious display of god's mercy and grace and that was when he sent jesus christ in the incarnation He sent his own son to this earth to be the savior of the world. And about 1,500 years from the building of the tabernacle, the types and figures were no longer needed because Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, would come and he would personally tabernacle with his people. But until then, God gave Israel a worship system that is nothing short of miraculous I think you would have to say that it is nothing short of miraculous the way that God showed the many many aspects of Jesus Christ through the tabernacle recently uh, i 'm not sure that you know this name, some of you probably do, but recently, Andy Stanley, who is the son of the uh, well known pastor Charles Stanley, uh, made a very controversial statement and this was this was going around and round if you if you read uh, religious news and so forth this statement was was really controversial Uh, and what it amounted to was he said that christ is not in the old testament he said that in effect he said that finding christ in the old testament is reading into the text things that aren't there and the way that people find christ in the old testament is to take new testament text and impose them upon the Old Testament looking for pictures of Christ. Well, I find that statement to be astounding since Jesus himself took the Old Testament and explained the scriptures and how they taught him. He went all the way through the scriptures from Moses and the prophets teaching how that the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, speak of him. So I hardly think that Jesus Christ, who is the author of all scriptures, would have to impose something on the Old Testament text that isn't there. Uh, I don't think that Jesus would do that. But we don't have any doubt, and neither did our, did our forefathers, our Christian forefathers, that the verses that we read here in the Old Testament are about Christ, and they're given to teach us more that we can know about Him than with the New Testament alone. And so what the Old Testament does is to give us a better understanding of Christ. As we look back on these many different pictures, we just get a new understanding, a better understanding of who Christ is. Now, here in Exodus 27, the command was given to construct a brazen altar for worship at the tabernacle. So if you'll look at our text in chapter 27, verse number 1, "...and thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood." five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make its pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. all the vessels thereof shalt thou make of brass." And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shalt thou make it. Now, I'd like to show you again the artist rendering that we have of the brazen altar. That's our picture that comes up next here. There we go. Um, and I think it's helpful that you visualize this by seeing the pictures and so you understand a little bit better what we're discussing uh, there you see the, the altar with the pans and the basins and other instruments that, that were used. And I mentioned in the last message that this wasn't a high altar as pagans would use, but this was low to the ground. There are no steps up to it and it stood only four and a half feet high. And the altar was low because the sacrifice must be lifted. The priests physically have to lift it, uh, the animal and put it on the altar. And the sacrifice is the most important thing that's done there. It's not the altar itself. Now, in the pagan religions, the altar was part of their worship. And as we discussed last week, they would, they would make beautiful, ornate altars. But what God doesn't want us to do, he, he doesn't want us to worship the altar. Or as you understand it, we are not to worship the cross. The cross is not a symbol that we worship, but we worship the Christ who is on the cross. That's the most important thing for us. So God says, make an altar, make it of wood, and overlay it with brass. The brass is protection for the wood to protect against the destruction of it in the fire. Well, last week our discussion began. Point number one was the placement of the altar That as you entered the courtyard of the tabernacle, situated directly in front of you after passing through the gate was this brazen altar. And attention is drawn to it because you couldn't enter. You couldn't approach the tabernacle unless you encountered the altar that's in front of you. And the lesson that we learned is that there is no entrance without a sacrifice. That the altar bars the approach to God. That the sacrifice, the altar there, has to be dealt with first before there's any hope that that anybody can come into the presence of God and worship Him or that God, God would do anything, anything would transact between Him and His people. There has to be that sacrifice. The relationship is predicated upon holiness and our sins are the barrier that keep us from God. We just read that today, Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your sins have separated between you and your God. We also learned that the sacrifice is a personal sacrifice, that the Israelite identified with the animal, and it was a a picture that the sacrifice that, that God would make for sin is a very personal one, in which the sins of the individual believer are the ones that are considered, and these are the sins that are paid for in the sacrifice, Uh, You should be aware that there are are, uh, very important doctrinal implications in the figures that we're discussing. When we say the death of Christ was personal, we mean it was not for the mass of humans that may or may not avail themselves of the sacrifice that's made, but that God chose the ones for whom that sacrifice is effectual. It's brought out to us in many different ways in Scripture, but one of those ways is that the Bible says that the names of those who will believe were written from the foundation of the world, that God has a record of those names in the book of life. And so when Christ made his sacrifice, it would be for those ones that the sacrifice would be effectual for, and that is those whose names are in the book of life. Now, I want to move on in our, in our study to discuss other important aspects If if this altar stands for the cross, then we must understand how truly significant it is. The death of the cross is central to Christianity. We don't have any faith without the death of the cross. So what happened there is the foundation of the Christian faith and of the salvation of our souls. So we want to look at our our second point in our outline, and that is the punishment of the altar. When, When the Israelite came through the gate of the courtyard, Uh, he brought his animal with him and there was the altar ready to receive the sacrifice. And we've just stated that there's no one who has any business in that courtyard except there is a sacrifice made. Now, if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter one, Leviticus deals with, with acts and order of worship and We spent months in Leviticus explaining the five different sacrifices that Israel made and why that they made those. And I want to show you something here in this command to bring a sacrifice, that in Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord... Ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him. This is parts that you might want to underline that it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. In verse number 5 it says, and he shall kill the bullock. Now the Israelite could have brought the most beautiful animal, the best well-kept animal. He could have brought the, the perfect animal, the loveliest, the spotless lamb or the strongest bull. But bringing the animal just by itself and not doing anything with it is not going to do him any good unless he kills the sacrifice. Unless he understands that the sacrifice being made is in the place of the sinner, then all of this is useless. There, there is a purpose in doing this. An animal has to die, or there won't be an atonement. Now, let's think about this first. First is that the sacrifice was an innocent victim. Each time I drive to church, I, I drive by a pasture on Stony Point where there are sheep. And early one one morning in uh, in February, I believe it was, I was driving by that pasture and I noticed there. That the the sheep had had their had their lambs and these little lambs were there and they were nudging up to their mothers and when you see something like that the the first thing that you think of oh oh how cute that is I mean that's that's just a a lovely scene to see these little lambs with their mothers and most of you know that a lamb is the most docile of all animals it, it's hard to provoke a sheep I don't know of anybody that that has to pin up their sheep because it's out attacking people. It's not a pit bull. It's not a pit bull sheep. Uh, no, a sheep is a very docile animal, very unpretentious animal, a friendly animal. So it's hard to think of a sheep in any way of being dangerous, and especially not one of these little lambs. I remember that my dad used to tell a story about when he was young that he they had a little baby lamb that he'd made a pet, and uh, he called this little lamb... Lammy. Okay, that's a very descriptive name, of course. Uh, it was Lammy, a simple name, but th- this lamb was his pet, and he used to feed the lamb with a bottle, and he took care of this little lamb and loved him. It was a lamb that was born deaf, and so he had to take special care of it, and and uh, he would do that. They lived on a farm in, in Kansas, and one day there was a storm that came up suddenly, And a storm in Kansas at any time could form a tornado. And so when they saw the storm come up, all the children ran and uh, they got into the storm shelter. But the little lamb wandered off and got under one of the wagon wheels. And when one of the wagons started up, it ran over the lamb and crushed him. Well, this little lamb was just, of course, an innocent lamb. Never would hurt anybody. Uh, He's a lamb that a little boy got joy and comfort from it was a pet and here's a young man living in the midst of a terrible depression in the middle of kansas which at that time was a dust bowl if you know anything about the depression era and so it takes something like that to something to, to comfort and uh, to take some pride in and, and to love. And so I, I remember my dad would tell this story. and you know, Well into his 50s, he was tell, still telling this story. And every, every time that he thought about it, it would, it would bring a tear into his eye. And, and the thing that made him tear up was he always compared that to Jesus. How, how innocent that little lamb was. And when he became a Christian, he would think back on that. And that just reminded him of Jesus. And the point, of course, would be that Jesus was innocent. That he never did anything wrong. He never did anything but help people. He brought comfort to people. He was compassionate. He brought healing to the disease and the dying. And yet, Jesus being innocent was taken by wicked men and was crucified. The innocent, precious Lamb of God was put to death by wicked men. Now, an interesting thing about a sheep is that You can take a sheep to the place where they're going to be slaughtered. And I remember when I was young, one of the things that uh, that we did in one of our classes was we went to the University of Kentucky Agricultural Station, and we young kids, we just got an opportunity to watch them shear sheep. And that was a very interesting thing to me, but you notice something about sheep, whether they're going to the slaughter, whether they're going to the shearer, they don't make any sounds. They, they can view what's going on. They see what's about to happen to them because all the other sheep are being slaughtered, but that lamb or that sheep won't do anything. He doesn't make any noise at all. And, and we find that that was, that was used in the scriptures to describe Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, verse 32, uh, it says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. Now, this all reminds us of the brazen altar, that it was a very bloody scene. Blood is shed there, although here is an altar that's fashioned with fine craftsmanship. There is nothing at all attractive about what's done at this altar. Thousands of animals, the finest of the herds and the flocks, were mercilessly slaughtered at this altar. And so when the Israelite brought his sacrifice, innocent animals were led blindly unwittingly to the slaughter and they were the best of the animals these aren't animals that are sick not animals that you would would get rid of and certainly not an animal that would harm a person that type of animal would never be brought because that couldn't picture the Lord Jesus Christ if uh, you remember how the Old Testament talks about if the ox gores a man that that ox needs to be killed so you're not bringing an animal here that's going to be killed anyway this is the very best that they have to offer uh, to offer rather and 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 We look at Jesus Christ and we see in him there can't be anything in him that merits death. Hebrews tells us about Christ in Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Well, Jesus was completely innocent. He was unjustly accused and led to the slaughter of the cross. And the Bible says He didn't open his mouth. He never complained about it. Now, there's one great difference, though, between Jesus being taken to the cross and these animals uh, taken to the altar, and that is that there was no one who took Christ's life from him. He offered his life willingly. And only when the sin payment was, was finished, when the suffering was enough, did Jesus surrender his life and say, it is finished. His life didn't expire at the hands of men. He didn't die until the suffering was complete. And then when it was complete, there was no need to hang on to his life any longer. And so then he surrendered up his life to God and the Father took his life. And remember the story how that Pilate marveled that Christ had so soon died when it was typical that a man who who hung on a cross could linger there for days before he died. But not Jesus Neither Pilate nor any natural force controlled the timing of his death. He gave up his life. And as I said, God took that life. Now, we also notice that the sacrifice suffered vicariously. Vicarious. That's a word that you need to be acquainted with. You need to know this word because if you study theology, if you read statements of faith, you'll see this word. And what it means is to go through something as if you were taking part in the experience or the feeling of another. That's a vicarious experience. You you feel what someone else goes through. Sometimes the word is replaced by substitute. That's the reason that, that we call Christ's sacrifice a substitutionary sacrifice. And it's all about how Christ felt what we would feel he experienced what we experience if we were sent to hell to suffer for sin now when we talk about jesus life and death being vicarious there are two ways to discuss it uh, one would be that he lived vicariously that is he experienced all human emotions he, he went through uh, all the pains and disappointments that we feel as hebrew says he was touched with the feelings of our infirmities But as we talk about it here, uh, we're not talking about the life of Christ. That's not considered, but rather the manner of his death, that Christ suffered vicariously or that he experienced literally our hell for us. Now, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 1, Scripture says in verse number 7, And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest Aaron's son shall lay the parts the head and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now the offering was burned. That symbolized the punishment of hell. There is a fire to symbolize the punishment of hell. When Jesus went to the cross, he suffered in human treatment, he was beaten and bruised beyond recognition. His face was marred more than any other man, the scripture says. But that physical torment that was, that was put upon Christ, inflicted on him by man, was not the payment for sin. It's not the beating of Christ. It's not the nails that are driven into his hands and his feet. That is not the payment for sin. The payment for sin happened in that three hours ...of darkness, when God shut out all the lights of heaven. When the darkness prevailed, that was the time that God unleashed the fury of hell on him. Because he was God, he could suffer in infinite capacity. His suffering, again, was the literal experience of hell... ...that would be endured by every believer who trust in him. Now, another reason that we believe the sacrifice of Christ was only for believers is because God would put no more punishment on him than was necessary. If he suffered the literal experience of hell, and it is literal punishment, then it's also a literal payment. It can't be a hypothetical payment. So either this is a sacrifice that satisfied God, or it didn't. God is just. He inflicts no more punishment than is necessary. And so Christ or God would not put any punishment on ...on Christ for anyone who's not forgiven, anyone who's not justified from his sins. So when we say that the suffering of Christ was vicarious, we can only conclude that what he did was to make a real substitution, one that really satisfied God. It didn't potentially satisfy God, because that wouldn't be true substitution. I mentioned last in last week's message that I would come back to this part, that the durability of the wood... And overlaying it with brass were very important. The wood, as we've seen in other parts of the tabernacle, represents the humanity of Christ. And the wood that's used is a specific kind. Not just any wood will do here, but this is a a, a wood that's chosen that is hard and durable and would endure the heat of the flames. And then overlaying that that wood with brass makes sure that the wood isn't burned up. Now, there's a lesson in that which tells us that the sacrifice of Christ was a lasting sacrifice. And one of the things that God told the people of Israel, this fire of the altar is never to go out. They always kept the fire kindled. The sacrifice of Christ was like this. It was lasting. It would do forever. It never needed to be repeated. So Hebrews chapter 10 says... And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now the sacrifice of bulls, goats, lambs, so on, those were repeated in the old testament thousands of those types of sacrifices were made but when christ came he made a once for all sacrifice it's enduring the one that he made was enough for all time and those who come by this sacrifice are perfected forever in the eyes of god we don't call the front area of our church here an altar i never speak of altar calls In the Roman Catholic Church, you will find an altar. Because every time they say a Mass, they sacrifice Christ again. I'd like to quote from the Catholic Catechism. This is question 343. The question is, what is the Holy Eucharist? Their answer, the Holy Eucharist is a sacrament and a sacrifice. In it, our Savior Jesus Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine, is contained, offered, and received. Under question 356, why does Christ give us his own body and blood in the Holy Eucharist? They answer, Christ gives us his own body and blood in the Holy Eucharist, first, to be offered as a sacrifice, commemorating and renewing for all time the sacrifice of the cross, second, to be received by the faithful in the Holy Communion, Third, to remain ever on our altars as a proof of his love for us and to be worshipped by us. I think there's only one word that you can assign to that. Blasphemy. The sacrifice was made once. It never needs to be repeated. It is an enduring sacrifice. So why, why don't I, I say altar when we talk about this? Part of our church. Why don't we have people come to the altar? And it's a very simple answer. Because there is no altar in a Baptist church. There is no atoning sacrifice that's made here. Christ is not crucified here. And you've heard me say this a thousand times. Words mean something. So when you use a word that's in the Bible. You better be understanding what that word is all about. And what that means. An altar is a place of sacrifice. And in the case of Christ. It's a place where Christ was sacrificed. So the altar then becomes a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. So we don't call it an altar because it's not an altar. Christ is not sacrificed here. Now the wood overlaid the brass. In, in scripture, brass represents God's judgment. And I, and I barely mentioned this when we were talking about the linen fence. But interspersed in the linen fence were pillars of brass that, that made the supports The white linen represents the righteousness of Christ, and that can never be appropriated to us without judgment that's placed on Jesus. So both the brass of the altar and the brass uh, of the post of the fence speak of this judgment, that Christ must be judged in the fire for us. Christ must go through the fire for us, and that's what saves us everlastingly from our sins. So Jesus faced God's judgment. And there isn't a sin that's left unpunished. You know, sometimes I think that we forget about that. That we become Christians and we just go ahead and sin. And we remember that God is loving towards us. God is merciful to us. God forgives us. But we forget that there is always a price that is attached to sin. There's always a price. And that price was paid by Christ. God doesn't forgive sin because he overlooks it. God is holy and just and every breach of his law must be punished. And so you as a believer, your sins are forgiven in Christ because He took God's judgment for you. So when you commit a sin, always remember sin has a price, and every sin that's committed had to be paid for with suffering. Now a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith is justification. I'm sure you're aware. Uh, justification. that's a legal term. It comes out of God's courtroom. Each of us was guilty before God. We deserved punishment. But through faith in Christ, he satisfied God's law for us. And so now we're declared not guilty in him. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And that's what the brazen altar is about. It's about God's judgment upon Christ because of our sins. Because He shed his blood, we're saved from God's wrath. So look the cross is Christ's brazen altar, you can say. The cross is the brazen altar, the place where God is satisfied for sin. That leads us then to the third area of discussion. Number three is the power of the altar. This morning I mentioned this. We we sang the power of the cross and what we'll talk about now is the power of the cross or the power of this altar. Now, there's a, there's a little but a, a very important detail concerning the altar. If you go back to our text in Exodus 27, in verse number 2, And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. Now, on this altar, then, there are horns that are on each of the four corners the four horns are symbolic of, of great power. In the Bible, horns are always used as symbols of strength and power. Um, I don't have time to go into it now, but you can look in the book of Revelation and you'll see horns mentioned many times. And sometimes those horns, the horns refer to governmental power. They refer to the power of empires. But in this case, of course, we're talking about the power of God, where the, the, these horns that are on the altar stand for God's power. So what is the power of this altar? Well, first we note that this altar has atoning power. In the twenty-ninth chapter of Exodus, the priests are given specific instructions concerning it. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. Now in our next picture, we have uh the priests that are pouring the blood at the base of the altar. The horns have been anointed, so the first thing that the priest did was to to sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar. That symbolizes that the that that the blood has the power to make atonement for sins. Don't you love the old song power, power, everlast or however that goes, power in the blood of Jesus. It's been so long since we sang and I can't even quote it anymore. That's a great old song. Um, We don't sing it often anymore, not because it's not a great song, but because there are many great songs. And what does that say? Well, the song says there's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Now, the atoning power speaks of its ability to satisfy God. Here we have Something that's powerful enough to take away all the sins of the world. Now, when you think about how great God is, what can satisfy him? What satisfies God? When you think about how great is God, how do you satisfy someone as great as God? When his law is so holy, what can satisfy God for the breaking of his law? Well, he tells us there's only one thing. There is one precious commodity and only one that God accepts for sin. And that's the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the picture of this did so much to Israel that they had to have this before God would have fellowship with them. The, the author of Hebrews says, if that's true of, of that, of that animal sacrifice, it has no power to take away sins. Then what if the real Christ comes? What happens when the real blood is shed? What atonement and what power is there in that? Peter said, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed. With corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we learn in the word of God, only the blood of Jesus has atoning power. Next is saving power. The horns symbolize God's power to save. In the Gospel of Luke, Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's father, Zacharias prophesied concerning the coming Savior. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Isn't that amazing? When Zacharias spoke those words, he thought about the horns of the altar, he knew about the Old Testament. He knew about what they were doing at the temple. They anointed the horns of the altar. And here he tells us that this represents the power of Christ's salvation. Now, a moment ago, I spoke of atoning power that satisfied God. Now we're talking about saving power. And this saving power is what lifts the sinner out of the mire of sin and washes him off and makes him sweet-smelling to God. There's only one thing that can save repeatedly in the tabernacle. It's the offering of blood. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so the Israelite, walking through that gate of the court, saw this altar where where animals were killed and blood is collected. It is to be sprinkled. And this was telling them and telling us that if you want to be saved, it's only the power of blood that can help you. But it seems that people want to try everything else. They have all their different methods of being saved. They'll try baptism and they'll try sacraments and they'll do the rosary and they'll pray to Mary and they'll say the Mass. Some believe, oh well, serving a meal at a homeless shelter, that surely must merit some consideration from God. Well, that might be a great thing to do, but that doesn't merit God's attention for salvation. He only accepts one thing for it. That's the blood, the sacrifice of Christ. Now, let me mention one other part of the power of the altar. Thirdly, is protecting power. So many aspects of, of this to explore that we can't get to them all. But when the blood was applied on the horns of the altar, it pictured God's protecting power. Now, we learn this from places like uh, what Israel knew about the Passover, what God said to them. Upon the plague of the death of the firstborn, God instructed Israel to put blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their houses, and the reason they did is explained in Exodus 12:23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So, the blood was to protect them from the death angel. The blood is the surety that those who are under the blood can't be harmed. The blood is the protecting power for that family of Israel. I think one of the most heinous doctrines taught by people today, and has been for centuries, quite frankly, that it's possible for a blood-bought, redeemed believer to lose his salvation you know what that says? It says that the blood of Christ is not sufficient. The blood of Christ does not work in all circumstances. There, there could be something that would arise that the blood of Christ is not good for. But you have to ask the question, how, how would you be saved if the blood of Jesus is not enough? If there's not enough power there to protect you from sin and protect you from Satan and protect you from yourself? Did you know that there are people who look at Romans chapter 8 at the end of Romans 8 where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God and it goes to the whole list of the many things that are there and they actually argue this way. Well, you see the list and it says none of these things can separate us from the love of God but it doesn't say anything about you. That you can separate yourself from the love of God. Well, heaven help us if God didn't save us from ourselves. God saved us from us, too, didn't He? He paid for all of our sins in the sacrifice of Christ. So we have to ask, is Hebrews 10:14 written in jest? Is this written to fool us? For by one offering he had perfected. How long? Forever, them that are sanctified. Jude wrote: "Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved, preserved." In Jesus Christ and called. There you see the word sanctified. In in the verse it's anchored in Hebrews 10.14. Those under the blood of Christ are sanctified. They are set apart. They are preserved. And then Jude went on in verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power. Both now and forever. Amen. The power. The power of Christ is protecting power. No person that's covered under the blood will be anything other than perfected in the presence of God. Sanctified. The word of God says sanctified for his glory, his majesty And his dominion both now and forever. Now God commanded that the fire of the altar should never go out. And that showed the sacrifice of Christ endures. It satisfies forever ensuring the safety of God's people. Now the tabernacle in in this altar, they teach us something. They they speak of Christ. And the message here is the mighty wonder working power of Christ's blood. Well, I need to close for this afternoon. You already know that it's very, very difficult to exhaust the teachings of the Tabernacle. Whenever we speak of the cross of Christ, how, how do you exhaust the cross? How do you say enough about the cross of Christ? So I want to conclude by, by saying that the brazen altar was made like other parts of the tabernacle, was made to be portable. The tabernacle has to be picked up and moved from place to place. Everything is movable. And for nearly 400 years, Israel moved it as they traveled through the wilderness. The brazen altar is this big, bulky box, but it's portable. So what can we learn from this? We're going to look at this last thing, the portability of the altar. In verses 6 and 7 of our text, And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Now, there in our picture, you see the, the, the poles, the long poles that are there in the side. That's the stage that we're talking about. And you say, well, what, what does that mean? Or is there some kind of a picture in that? Well, this is actually the practical part, the very practical part of the teaching. We, we talk about atonement. We've talked about protection and vicarious suffering, uh, justification. All those things are doctrinal aspects of the Christian faith. But where do we finally get down to practical matters? Well, this is what you take home as the practical aspect of the altar. There are staves made, the long poles to put in the sides of the altar. Those are the support. That's the supports for picking up and carrying it. And that would take it to the next place where Israel made camp. Now, the staves teach us that the cross of Christ must be carried throughout our Christian journey. Jesus said in Luke 8 or Luke 9, rather, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Wherever Israel went, they carried the altar. From encampment to encampment, they carried the altar. You can't leave the altar behind. That's the place of sacrifice. And it teaches that as we're daily going through our lives, that we must also take up the cross of Christ, that we can't leave his cross behind us. It's always with us. You know, Matt and I were talking a little bit earlier, just throw this in, uh, we, we were talking about how do, how do the people of God miss services? How, how do they not think about the service that's to be rendered to God in His church and just willy-nilly do this, go there, do whatever, and this has not become an actual part of the fabric of their Christian being? Uh, we were discussing this, and I said, you know, since I became a Christian, maybe I'm looking at it from the wrong side, I don't know, but this is my life. This is my life. This is what I do. I, I go to church. I'm here. And, and that's like the cross of Christ. You just don't leave it behind wherever you go. His church is the place that Christ died for His people in the church. Isn't that not right? Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Where? On the cross. The church has to mean something to God's people. We just don't leave it behind us. And so, it's the responsibility of Christians to bear Christ's work. The work of the church to take up the cross wherever we go, to bear the good news of Christ where we go. Now, you notice that there are two staves that are put into the rings on either side to carry this altar. What happens if you just put in one of the staves? Well, the altar's unbalanced. It's impossible to carry it. And so it is with the cross of Christ that whenever we carry the gospel, we must have two parts. We must have the death of Christ... And the resurrection of Christ. There is no resurrection without death. And the death means nothing if there isn't a resurrection. It leaves us hopeless and helpless in our sins. Now, many people do believe in a crucified Christ. You're not going to find hardly anybody that doesn't believe that Christ was crucified. That's pretty much an historical fact, isn't it? Christ was crucified. But they have difficulty with the resurrection part. That's the part that stumps them. That's the part, you remember, the Jews were so adamant about. Somebody stole the body. It can't be a real resurrection and all the excuses that they made. But without the resurrection of Christ, the gospel is a farce. It's a travesty. Now, in the tabernacle, you find many illustrations of the death of Christ. And we ought not to overlook the parts that say something about his resurrection because it's found there, too. You would never imagine that what Israel would do is to have a perpetual picture of an animal laid on the altar. That they would carry this altar around with a dead animal on it all the time. Well, that doesn't happen. The, the, the animal is consumed. It's made an offering to God. Well, you wonder then, why do people have a perpetually crucified Christ on a crucifix? Why would you do that? Where is the risen Christ? His death is meaningless unless he arose, unless he's living in heaven for us, we have no salvation. So you might say that a crucifix is an unbalanced picture because it doesn't tell the whole story. Well, the question for us is, have we seen the power of the cross? Do we understand its position in our lives? Do we recognize the punishment that's put on Christ? And do we commit ourselves to doing this, to carrying that cross daily? Taking that to the world that's dying without the Savior. Now, the Tabernacle is a great place where you see all of these aspects of a dying and risen Savior. It's a great place for us to enrich our understanding of the majesty of the Savior. Do you know Him? Have you seen Him? Do you understand what Jesus did? You know, these things just ring back to me as I'm thinking about what Charlotte said this morning. Do you understand what Jesus did? You are so vile. We are so, I am so vile, so wicked. Do I understand what Jesus did for me? Do you see how he atoned God for sin and how he enabled salvation through the blood? I hope you see that. I hope everyone in here is a believer. Do you appreciate the Old Testament pictures of what Christ did for you? And I'll tell you, we will not give up the Old Testament as Anley Stanley did. We will not, because here we find Christ. These are stunning visuals of Christ. And it's it's just plainly this the more that you know about Christ, the more that you understand about Christ, the better you will serve him, and the more that you will understand this great salvation that's given through him. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight, this afternoon. Thank you, Lord, for the pictures of the tabernacle, the cross of Christ and how we thrill to have the opportunity to speak of what Christ did on that cross. But we also recognize the cross itself is not to be worshipped and that Christ is no longer on that cross. He's risen and he is living, which demands that we serve him faithfully every day. We must take up our cross and follow him in everything that he asks us to do, tells us to do. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. dot